Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. All right, we're in a five-week series called Simple Words, where we're looking each week at just one word that can change your life. We started with the word no, how that one little word can begin to uh, declutter your life and make space for God. And then we looked at yes, how no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. And we can say yes to God every day. We can say yes to life every day. Last week, we looked at the word help, how it takes a lot more courage to say the word help than it does to hide and to pretend and to deny and act like we don't need help. In fact, we were made to live in continual dependence on God in the context of surrender. And that word help, though it may look like weakness, is actually life and strength. All right, today we look at what might be the hardest word of this whole series. Uh, It's a word that will strike at your pride. Uh, You may not like this word. It's the word sorry. Uh, Not like oops or like my bad. It's like going under the knife, like examining myself with unflinching honesty and confession and humility and setting things right. It's like, uh, like surgery for the soul. It's a real simple word, but people find amazing reasons to avoid it. Uh, maybe it's been a long time since you've said this word. I want to start today with this. Uh, One time after a hike on the Pleasanton Ridge with my wife, uh, my wife was looking at me and she said, "Uh, you have a tick in your leg. You know, my leg kind of felt weird. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what a tick looks like. Uh, It just looked like a random spot to me. And Kathy said, well, I'll cut it out. She's a nurse practitioner working in dermatology, so she loves cutting things out of people, uh, especially me. So she got a, a pair of pliers and like a chainsaw and, and she cut it out. Uh, she got the tick out of my leg. She saved my leg. Uh, now imagine that I would have said to Kathy, you know, I don't want to be bothered to mess with this tick. You know, it's not that big of a deal. My life is still manageable. My leg is still manageable. It'll probably just go away by itself. Or imagine that I would have said to Kathy, you know, why did you have to tell me I have a tick? You know, you're shaming my body. You're making me feel bad. Like, we don't do that kind of thing with our bodies. Uh, We don't do that kind of thing with our cars or our possessions. You know, if someone tells you that you have a nail in your tire, you don't say, oh, man, well, like, why did you have to tell me that I have a nail? Like, we don't do that with our businesses or our houses. We only do that with our souls. We only do that with our character. We only do that with what matters most to God. You see, I have a resentful temper. I have an undisciplined tongue. I have a habit of lust. I have, uh, I live in a bondage to gossip all the time. I'm shackled to selfishness every day. Like my real God is money. You know, that's my identity. That's my security. 
And people who know me well can see this as clearly as Kathy saw a tick. But I subtly or not so subtly let them know that they're telling me this would not be welcomed by me. So I live a respectable double life. I go to church, I pray, especially when I need something. I believe, although I doubt a lot too. Sorry is mostly a word I use to kind of smooth over relational unpleasantness, to try to control people, not to deliberately face the full ugly truth about the state of my soul. So I keep my character defects hovering vaguely in the background. You know, I don't systematically examine myself for them. Like, who would do that? I don't make it a priority to seek God's help to remove them, no matter what the cost. I don't invite other people to look at these hidden areas. I mean, a lot of other people don't do this either. You know, God's okay with us not doing this, right? See, this gets us real deeply into grace which is a word that we often misunderstand and misapply and turn into pain avoidance. This gets us real deeply into guilt and confession and redemption and mercy and what kind of people God wants us to be, you know, what kind of community we're called to be as a church. I want to tell you at the beginning of this message right now, with as much love as I can, you have a tick in your leg. Now, will you make asking God to deliver you at all cost the great priority of your life? Or will you pretend like it's not there and just hope that it goes away and say, I don't want to have to look at it. That would be too painful. There's a strange and scary story in the New Testament that tells us how high the stakes are. In the earliest days of the church, uh, just when the church is kind of getting started in Jerusalem, uh, one of the couples in that community is a husband and a wife. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, we don't know what first drew them to the community, what first attracted them to Jesus, uh, but there's something about the church that appeals to them. One of the most unusual aspects of that community was generosity. Uh, most people in the early church were poor, but there were some people who had resources and they would share them. We read about one man named Joseph. Uh, he sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet to be used for the community. And people thought so highly of Joseph that they started calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Ananias and Sapphira, like Joseph, had some resources. So here's what happens next. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, let's play this out a little bit. Uh, they see how other people with resources are giving stuff away. And maybe they, they feel the pressure to give and maybe resent it. You know, they see Joseph getting a new name, Barnabas. Maybe they, uh, they're a little jealous, you know, and they want that kind of attention. They want to be generous, but they also want to be rich. They want to be loved, but they also want to indulge their jealousy. They want to be celebrated, uh, but they also want to deceive. They have divided hearts. And, you know, I'm like that. 
Like, I want God, I really do, but I also want what I want that I know God is opposed to. Ananias gets this idea. He thinks, well, we could take a field, you know, take some of the money from selling it, give it to the church. We could keep some of the money for ourselves. You know, it wouldn't even be lying, like not really. Like we don't have to say that we're giving, we're not giving it all. We just know people will think that we're giving it all. Like we'll have this false reputation for generosity. We'll indulge our greed. We'll avoid the pain of exposing our jealousy and resentment. Like we can have the admiration of others while we secretly betray the values that we pretend to uphold. You know, it'll be, it'll be great. And so he tells his wife, Sapphira. And now this is a, a key moment because she could have said, hey, honey, you know, there's a tick in your leg. Like, there's a defect in your character. I'm getting the chainsaw. Like, I'm cutting it out. Instead, she says, okay, that's a good idea. And this is what a great writer, Neil Plantinga, calls the sin of conniving. And that's a real destructive kind of sin. We pretend not to notice our character defects. Good connivers don't even acknowledge that they're conniving. They just connive. The Apostle Peter finds out about this. Uh, we don't know how, but he finds out. Uh, Peter does not connive. Peter confronts Ananias directly. He makes it very clear that the deepest sin here isn't the jealousy or the resentment or the greed. In fact, he says to Ananias, you could have kept all the money if you wanted to. Like no one was holding a gun to your head. You didn't have to sell the field. The real sin here was deceit. It was the decision to live a double life. There's something about spiritual hiddenness that's so toxic to God's community. It makes it uh, such a sin that it's not just against the people, but it's against God. And here's what happens next. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. A couple hours later, his wife Sapphira comes in, same conversation with Peter, same results. She falls down dead. They carry her body out. The text says this, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. <laughs> no kidding. Now, question, why in the world does this story make it into the Bible? Remember, when the Bible was written, it was the early days of the church. They're trying to grow the church. Having a story about someone falling over dying in church doesn't seem like a good recruiting strategy, right? Like, like come to church, you might die. Here's what I think was going on. Because the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost in Acts 2, the early church was a community of uh, unprecedented spiritual power. Um, and they had the power to heal and the power to forgive sin and the power to break down ethnic barriers between groups that had hated each other, uh, the power to love. Because the Holy Spirit came, the human race got uh, plugged into a source of power that it had not known since the Garden of Eden. Question, how does spiritual power work? This is really important for you as an individual, for uh, your relationships, and for us as a church. Spiritual power flows 
when people get honest about their flaws and their sin and their need for God. None of us can fully understand this. None of us controls this. It's kind of counterintuitive. We think it's all about, you know, being great or being wise or strong or smart, but actually the power of God really flows through people when we get serious about acknowledging our weaknesses and our confusion and our guilt and our sin and our need for God. God is really clear about this. God says to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we get confused about this. We think we have to show people how strong we are. No. A community of people, a family, a small group, especially a church, is this like spiritual ecosystem, a spiritual power grid. And we forget about this and we think that we have to look better than we are. That kills the church. When we get honest, when we share our real stories, our real struggles, our character defects, it increases the flow of spiritual power. It's when we're willing to say to one another, you know, I messed up today. I'm dealing with temptation right now. It's when we're honest with each other. When sins get named, you know, that's when people get known and that's when people get loved and that's when people get healed. When you and I hide, it decreases spiritual power. It, it blocks, it impedes honesty and change and grace. It doesn't damage just the hider, but then other people are led to hide as well. And we all sense this, like when people are wearing masks and then we get stuck and then we pretend and then we isolate and then we end up in despair. You know, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, God started a new community where spiritual power flowed in an unprecedented way. You see, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is the first story of hiding and deception in the early church. It's very much a, a repeat of the story of hiding and deception that happened at the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden. It's kind of like God's second attempt, like new humanity, and now a second story of the fall. And here, too, is a real visible way that we see this leads to death. It, it always leads to death. So here's part of the lesson. Here's part of why this story made it into the Bible. Do not make your ultimate fear the fear of dying. Fear living the wrong life. Fear becoming the wrong person. Fear hiding. Fear losing your soul. When the text says not once but twice, great fear seized them all. I mean, we, looked at, we look at that and think, well, uh, that must have been unpleasant. No, it's just sanity. Ironically, it's people who know grace who know, it, who know this the best. Uh, there's an old song, uh, probably you know it, Amazing Grace. Like one of the verses says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." You know, there are people I know and love who are in AA. Uh, they live in the knowledge and the healthy fear that apart from the everyday, moment-by-moment -moment grace of God, they are one choice, just one drink away from hell and death. God, help me, right? God, help me. Jesus, help me, like we talked about last week. 
Such people need a community of intense spiritual power, the kind of power that comes only with great honesty and deep confession and thorough cleansing. And that's the church Jesus came to start. And I have to tell you, I'm tired of that power being present in places like 12-step communities and not present in God's church, which is the place where it was born. You know, you will help us become this church or you will help to thwart it one way or the other. You can't avoid this decision. You can't avoid this crossroads. All right, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. Let me fill you in on a little personal secret. I use humor to cover up any situation I deem as awkward. Do you have someone like that in your life? I was always the class clown, the funny family member, and I always use humor to diffuse situations. It's second nature. And I tell you that because in our Monday staff meeting, Matt told us what the topic of the sermon for the week was. Sorry. And I immediately made a joke about playing that Justin Bieber song, Sorry. Don't listen to it. It's not very good. When Matt told us the topic, my brain immediately sent fire signals saying, this topic, this word is awkward, so make a joke about it to diffuse the moment. I've been thinking about that a lot as Matt's been talking. Sorry stirs up these emotions or feelings or ideas in our brain when we talk about it. And for some of us, the word sorry or the topic of saying sorry brings about nervousness, anxiety, fear, shame. The word sorry brings up this idea of an action, an action of vulnerability or accountability. When we say sorry, we acknowledge our imperfections, our wrongdoings. Sorry pinches our egos and self-identity. And so just thinking about the word and the action of being sorry makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And maybe you're feeling that right now. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is one that I don't want to relate to, but I do. And if we were honest, we would probably say that all of us have held back something from God. So how do we begin to apologize to a God who knows us and sees us? How do we say sorry to God? And how do we say sorry to the community that we hold back from? How do we get comfortable living into the uncomfortableness of being a people of sorry? In a minute, Matt is going to give us some steps, and because I love alliteration, I've called them and labeled them as reflect, repent, rebuild. Reflect, repent, rebuild is a way that we start to get more comfortable with saying sorry to both those around us and to God. Friends, here's the truth. Sorry is an important and simple word that we often shy away from because saying sorry and being sorry isn't easy. It counters every fiber of our being. It means we have to surrender, and that isn't easy. But as image bearers of God, we are called to actively engage with the kingdom around us and with our Heavenly Father. And part of that engagement is understanding when we fail and when sorry needs to be on a, a word on our lips. So right now, pause. Think about that feelings popping up as you've been hearing these stories in the Bible and get ready to respond with action. And if that's too overwhelming, well, pause this and then listen to Sorry by Justin Bieber and then hop back in. Let's be a community anchored in Sorry. To do that, to be a community anchored in Sorry, we need a few practical steps. So let's rejoin Matt as he lays out how to reflect, repent, and rebuild so that the simple word of Sorry floods our words and our actions. 
All right, in the time that's left in this message, I wanna walk us through how to become the kind of people who live this word sorry with deep spiritual power before God and before others. Uh, it's not rocket science, it's just hard. And uh, we'll look at three steps. The first step is, I do a fearless and searching moral inventory. And this goes way, way back in the life of the people of God. The psalmist put it like this, search me, O God, and know my heart. And I don't do this alone. I do this with God. I ask for God's help, like we talked about last week. I set aside time to be alone. And I use a framework. And often when I do this, I will use what's been known for a long time in the church as the seven deadly sins. Uh, pride, anger, lust, envy, gluttony, greed, and laziness. And I ask God, God, help me to see where these are in my thoughts and in my behavior. And then I write them down real honestly. Is this painful? Yeah, it's intensely painful. Now, I want to say a word about why you should do this. Um, I was thinking about our world and about this question. What does our world need most? Not what does our world need a lot of. Like, what does it need most? I would say what our world needs most is not better houses or better laws or better medicine or better governments. It needs better people. Like that's need number one. And the good news is you can make a great contribution to this. <laughs> so where should you start? Like what should be project number one? Like who do you think you have the best shot to make into a better person? Your friend, maybe your roommate, your spouse, your boss, your child? No, you have the best shot at doing that in you. For me, it's me. I get the tick removed from my leg because I'm responsible for my leg. I get the sin dealt with in my soul because I'm responsible for my soul. And I want you to know, personally, I do this on a regular basis. Uh, every week I review my week and I ask God to help me see where I was resentful, where I was anxious, where uh, I indulged in self-pity, and then what kind of apologies I need to make the following week. Uh, periodically, I'll take a longer chunk of time, like several hours, and I'll do a longer uh, self-examination. And then it's time for the next step. So the first step is I do a fearless and searching moral inventory. The second step is I confess my faults to God, myself, and another person. Again, this came from the Jesus community, the people of God. Uh, James is writing to the early church and says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Notice the connection between the practice of confession between people and the power for healing. Something happens when people get real. That's when power begins to flow. I confess to God and myself and another person. Those three, God, me, and another person. Guess which one of these three is the hardest? I will guarantee you what's hardest is to confess your faults to another person. And the primary reason why that is because that person is looking you right in the eyes. Now, I understand that most people will be unwilling to do this. And so I wanna give you a reason to do this second step. 
Wouldn't you like to have fewer problems in your life? Like, what would you say is the number one creator of problems in your life? It's you, right? Like, you are your biggest problem. Now, the good news is, together with God's help, you can pursue the transformation of the number one source of your problems. And I know, I know a lot of people will say, well, I don't have to do this. Like, uh, God can forgive me without me needing to tell another person what I've done wrong. Well, of course he can. Like, God can forgive you any way God wants to. I mean, that's part of what it means to be God. But I do this on a regular, regular basis, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a strange thing. When I know that I'm going to have to face the pain, the humiliation of telling my friend about my name dropping or my lying or about my lusting or about my pouting, oddly enough, it makes me less likely to name drop or lie or lust or pout because I know that I'm going to have to face the pain of telling someone that. And I don't want to face that. And I have to tell you, I would not want to do life without having someone in my life that I can confess everything to. Now, you should do this only with someone you know really well, only with someone you uh, fully trust. Like, don't walk up to a stranger sometime this week and say, hey, my pastor said that I'm supposed to tell you the darkest sin I've ever committed, so here goes. It may be that you want to find a really good counselor where you can uh, trust their confidentiality. You know, for some people, that will be the person they tell all of their secrets to. I'll tell you something else. As long as I carry around a secret, I carry around a burden. You're only as sick as your secrets. And it works like this. When I keep a secret from you, even if you tell me you love me, what I'll be thinking is, yeah, but you wouldn't love me if you knew the truth about me. See, you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. You can only be fully loved if you're fully known. And God made the church to be a place where people can be fully known and fully loved and fully healed. When you confess to another person, you experience what's sometimes called the relief of healing love. And really, that's when you're more able to forgive other people because you're familiar with your own sinfulness and your own brokenness. I'll tell you something else. We live in a, a spiritual ecosystem. When we hide, we die. When we get real, we get healed. So I confess to God, to myself, and to another person. And then there's a third step in this process of living sorry. I do whatever I can to make right what I've made wrong. Again, this goes way back in the Bible. It's not rocket science. Uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, uh, th that lists what the people of Israel, what really you and me, are doing. The sins that we're committing. Deception, stealing, carelessness, anger, and so on. And then God says, uh, when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, he says this, they must make restitution in full. 
The purpose behind doing a moral inventory, confessing and making amends is not that you have to, uh, you know, do that in order to get God to forgive you. It's not that you uh, have to do that to smooth out relationships, although very often it will bring about reconciliation and healing and forgiveness in amazing ways. At its core, this is the way transformation and redemption work. It's how you and I receive grace to become a different person. It's a funny thing, but if I gossip or indulge in lust or lie, and then I know I have to tell someone about it, and then I know that I'm going to have to set those things right, I'm less likely to do that stuff than if I know I'm going to be able to keep it all a secret. Uh, There's a teaching pastor I know who essentially does the same type of work that I do. He studies scripture, he reads commentary, he does research, he, he writes, and he teaches the Bible to people a lot like you and me. Except he teaches in a church that has a lot more people than we do at Blue Oaks. And when we see each other at conferences, uh, the question always gets asked, you know, how many people are coming to your church? And when he tells me how many people attend his church, Instead of my first thought being, you know, wow, that's great. You know, a lot of people are learning and growing because of the work that you do as a teaching pastor. Like my first thought is to feel a little inadequate, to feel a little sad, to feel a little jealous. You know, how come I'm not teaching more people? Now, here's the point. I only see this in me when I examine myself and when I'm willing to confess this to a friend. Now, this is not something that would require uh, making amends, but as I was reflecting on it, this thought came to me. Write a note to this person. Congratulate him and tell him, like, you're doing a great work for God. God is using you to make a difference in so many lives. Way to go. In fact, Matt, if you really want to be restored to moral sanity, every time you get jealous of someone else who is doing better than you, write them a note and congratulate them. I've been writing a lot of notes lately. Is it painful? Yeah, it's intensely painful. I'm told giving birth is painful. I'm sure glad my mom went through with it. Is it worth it? Yeah, it's intensely worth it. Now, I want to mention two barriers that could trip you up here. Uh, One of them is this thought that may occur to you. I don't really need to do this. Uh, I know there are like moral train wrecks out there, you know, murderers and thieves and adulterers, kidnappers, addicts. They need this, but my life is manageable. You know what you do? You put yourself in the category of conventionally decent people. You know, not perfect, not a train wreck. I'm a conventionally decent person. Here's the deal. The sins of conventionally decent people are particularly insidious, like pride, resentment, judgmentalism, lovelessness. They're actually the sins we most need help to see in our lives. By the way, it was conventionally decent people who were Jesus' biggest enemies. It was conventionally decent people who put him on the cross. It was conventionally decent people who killed the church. Speaking as a recovering, conventionally decent person, I don't need less help from other people with my sins. I need more help. 
I need more help to see those areas of my life that I am blind to. Sometimes I'm blind to my sin. All right, another barrier. The evil one will put this thought in your mind. I know I should do this. I know I ought to do this. I know God wants me to do this. Uh, I know I need to do this, but I just don't want to do it. Of course, you don't want to do it. <laughs> like, like no one wants to do it. Like what in the world does want have to do with it? Like where in the Bible do the writers of scripture say, thou shall do what thou wantest to do? If you're serious about following Jesus, then I don't want to do it died a long time ago as the ultimate criteria for your decisions. I mean, if you're still allowing, I don't want to do it, to trump Jesus's call to do it, then I would challenge you to think about whether or not you're really following Jesus. Now you might wonder, isn't there an easier way? No, there's not. I mean, this is like dying. <laughs> That's why the Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Like, what does that feel like? Like, what happened to Paul's soul when he was crucified with Christ? Now, this could sound flip, and I don't mean it to at all. It hurts like hell. Like, being crucified with Christ hurts precisely like hell, the hell of my sin, my betrayal, my ugliness, my deception, my apathy, my selfishness. To be seen and known for what I am, man, it hurts like hell. But the thing about resurrection is if you want to experience it, you're going to have to die first. <laughs> now, I just want to get real personal with you. If you've never made the decision to die to yourself, to die to your old life, to make Jesus your forgiver, your friend, your new life, your source of power and your guide, I mean, you could do that right now, today. You can ask him right now. You can confess and repent and invite him to your life right now. I want to lead you in a prayer. And let me say this before I do. If you're going to pray this prayer, don't do this as a conventionally decent person. Do this as someone who is laying down their pride and their reputation and their entitlement. Because listen, you have a tick in your leg. All right, would you bow your head and pray with me? God, I confess that I have sin in my life. God, I confess that I can't even see the sin in my life the way that you see it. I'm blind to it sometimes. And that's why the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. God, help me to see the sin in my life the way that you see the sin in my life, the way that probably a lot of people around me see the sin in my life. And God, I confess that I have sinned before you and I need your kind of saving. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your uh, unconditional love in my life to bring about any kind of change. And so maybe for the first time right now, you're saying this prayer and you're receiving the forgiveness of Jesus into your life. God, we do that. We receive the forgiveness that you provide through your son, through his sacrifice on the cross, through pouring out his blood, 
that was shed for us so that we can be clean, we can be cleansed, we can be completely healed and forgiven. So we, we receive that right now. Some of us have already received that. And God, I pray that you would help us to search our hearts and to find someone that we can confess to. And God, whatever those things that we've done wrong, as we search our hearts and as we do this moral inventory and as we uh, confess to you and ourselves and to other people, uh, God, would you help us to make a commitment that we're gonna make right the things that we've made wrong, that we're gonna go back and we're gonna reconcile those relationships, that we're gonna do this difficult work of living this word, sorry, because we know that you've designed us to do this. You've designed us to live this way and it's gonna be the best way to live. So God, would you continue to lead us as we process this information, as we live it out, as we live it out this week? And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.